Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, I'm John Molesky. Welcome back to another episode of America's 360. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. We're in the midst of election season in the Americas, and while every election can be significant, there's a sense that the current slate of votes to be taken is loaded with highly consequential decisions facing voters. Some are upcoming, while others have already taken place. In this episode of America's 360, our roundtable will review outcomes of elections in Bolivia and Chile, and also look ahead to what might happen in Canada. So let's get started. We're joined by Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Hi, Benjamin. How are you, John? Doing well, thank you. Brazil Institute Director Ricardo Zuniga. Hi, John. Hey, Ricardo. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands joins us. Hi, John. Hi, Chris. We're also joined by Latin American Program Director Cynthia Arnson. Hi, Cindy. Hey, John. And Mexico Institute Director Duncan Wood. Hello, Duncan. Good afternoon, John. Let's get started. There are three countries and elections on our agenda for today. We're going to discuss each separately, and we'll be by asking Benjamin to provide our panel with an overview of the October 18 general election in Bolivia, where votes were cast for president, vice president, all seats in both the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies. Benjamin. Thanks so much, John. Listen, what happened in Bolivia, I think most notably, was what we did not expect to occur Right Last year, there was an election in Bolivia. President Evo Morales had sought a controversial fourth term. He ignored a national referendum that would deny him the right to run again. He got approval from the Supreme Court. And amid allegations of fraud, violent protests, and a nudge from the armed forces, Morales ended up fleeing Bolivia and living where he lives today in exile in nearby Buenos Aires. The country has remained deeply divided ever since with social tensions worsened by a highly conservative interim president, still in office, Jeanine Añez. She's led Bolivia since Evo's departure. So as you can imagine from all that context, the international community and most of all Bolivians were really on edge leading up to the October 18th election. And very unexpectedly, the election that you referenced went smoothly and went peacefully. And that's in large part because it was a landslide. Right? Your concern in these situations always is, is that the election is closed, which means there's some opportunity for skullduggery, a little bit of manipulation, a little bit of contesting votes um, in a way that can get heated very fast. In this case, Morales' former finance minister, Luis Arce, won over 55% of the vote, even though he was competing against six other candidates. The closest competitor was former President Carlos Mesa, who got about a third of the vote. And because the difference between those candidates was so vast, Mesa quickly conceded. He congratulated Arce on Twitter. Agnes also recognized the result, which is no small thing. She was accused of authoritarian behavior over the last several months. She repeatedly delayed the election, claiming that she was extending her rule only because of concerns over the pandemic. So the fact that she and and the major opponent conceded quickly was really significant and again, really unexpected. Also, Evo Morales' political movement, which he created, the MAS, the movement towards socialism, won majorities in both houses of Congress and apparently fell short of the two-third majority that it would need for any further constitutional reform. 
The election, again, it had enormous participation, almost 90%, despite the ravages of the COVID-19 pandemic in Bolivia, outside observers, including from the Organization of American States, which had declared the previous election fraudulent, this time said it was free and fair and without any major problems. So what does it all mean, John? Well, fans of Evo Morales say that his removal constituted a coup, he should have been allowed to run, and in fact, they say he did win the election, and that this vote was sort of a do-over, and even though he wasn't a candidate, this was a comeuppance to them for Bolivian conservatives. It was a validation, they say, of Morales' legacy, and it was a repudiation of the arch-conservative interim administration, which is accused of human rights abuses and of moving very quickly to turn the country in a conservative direction, even though the interim president was not elected. And indeed, look, I think the vote overwhelmingly for the MAS party is a sign that people really do appreciate Evo Morales' legacy in its broad outlines. It was a period where Bolivia's majority indigenous community was finally incorporated into the political system and given the government resources and attention that it rightly deserved. And the economy performed relatively well under Evo Morales, in large part thanks to high prices for Bolivian natural gas. This was during a period of so-called pink tide leadership in Latin America and high commodity prices. And Evo Morales was one of the last of the leaders in the pink tide to still be in office up until he was deposed or fled last year. But importantly, and I'll finish with this, are to say the president-elect is temperamentally very different from Morales. He's more technocratic. He has said that Morales, who, as you know, faces criminal charges in Bolivia, who is increasingly authoritarian in his last years in office, who had been losing popularity, that even Morales will not have a role in the new administration, even if he'll likely be allowed to come back to Bolivia and probably see the criminal charges dissipate. And that different approach, less ideological, um, would be helpful for the United States relationship to Bolivia. That relationship was essentially non-existent for almost a decade. It was reborn, perhaps too enthusiastically, under the interim government, and it was being rebuilt gradually um, during this period of, of conservative rule in Bolivia. But it had gotten really bad under Evo Morales. In 2008, the Bolivians expelled the U.S. ambassador, expelled USAID, stopped cooperating with the Drug Enforcement Agency, um, even though Bolivia is a key producer of coca used to, to process cocaine for the U.S. market. And so, you know, whether the U.S.-Bolivian relationship can survive the return of Evo Morales and his party, we'll see. But I think there is a possibility because of Artise's style and because of the remarks he's made already that he will have a different approach to governing, less ideological than Evo Morales. I'll leave it there. So, so thank you, Benjamin. Terrific. So big sigh of relief. What could have been a crisis ends up being a normal election. But uh, do, what do we know about why it turned out that way? When you look at the polling numbers a couple of weeks out, uh, Arce sitting at about 35, 36 percent, it ends up with 55 percent. Was that flaws in the polling or a surge at the end? Uh, what happened? I mean, always hard to say. Polling is just a snapshot, even when you know the most successful methods are followed. I think there's not a great amount of confidence in some of the Bolivian pollsters, although there had been broad agreement amongst the various pollsters over time. So it seemed like they were predicting a close election and we might see one. I think probably the answer is just that the um, distaste for the interim government was vast. And I think that could have been guessed. She herself had presented herself as a candidate for a while during the campaign and then finally dropped out because it was clear she wouldn't win. But the opposition never really coalesced. They had lots of candidates. They thought they could squeak into a second round 
and then they have an opportunity to coalesce around one candidate. Bolivia, like Argentina and other countries in Latin America, have a two-round system so that whoever wins has a majority of the electorate behind them. But it turned out that wasn't necessary. And I think for Bolivia, that's a good thing. Turnout that high can also be a factor in, in changing those projections. So let's get some thoughts from your fellow panelists. Anyone want to uh, talk about the Bolivia election before we move to our next segment? And I'll jump in. I think one of, the, one of the key features uh, was the division within the opposition, as Benjamin was saying. Um, it wasn't just Carlos Mesa, it was also someone further to the right, uh, Camacho um, dividing the opposition vote. So the idea that you know you could go with a unified opposition against the candidate of the former leading party, you know, I think was a disadvantage. But the other part of this huge sigh of relief is that a lot of people had been predicting um, a great deal of electoral violence if the you know results uh, were contested in some way or there were suspicions that that the vote count was not being carried out you know appropriately um, there were street protests in which many people were killed property damaged in the wake of the um, of the election in which Evo was defeated or ousted in a coup, depending on the language. I mean, there were some real irregularities in the vote, um, but there was significant political violence at that time. And given the level of polarization in the country, um, there were some really, I think, well-founded fears of, um, of violence should this not go uh, smoothly or in a very demonstrable win by one side or the other. Duncan. Yeah. Uh, so I, I find it interesting that the, the pre-election polling suggested that you know one third of voters didn't think that their their vote would be would be respected, which suggests real problems with legitimacy. But the election result itself suggests, as as Cindy just indicated, that there is actually a, a surprising amount of unity in the country, and that's something which I think is uh, is, is extraordinarily encouraging at a time where we do see polarization across the board uh, in in the hemisphere right now. So I, I guess I have a question for uh, for Ben more than anything, which is, you know, does this mean that we're going to see a united Bolivia that is ready to uh, uh, to overcome its many development problems? We will not, Duncan. I think Bolivia, unfortunately, remains you know, violently divided, even if we didn't see violence following this election. Uh, you know, the fight for shares remains, the idea of the indigenous community now involved in the system, but, but you know, represented by groups that, you know, really have little base in, in some of the other regions outside the, the highlands. I think, you know, I don't, unfortunately feel optimistic yet, but hopefully our say will be a unifying leader and will prove me wrong. Anyone else with a, a quick thought on Bolivia before we, we move on? One of the one of the key features I think that that allowed Arce to triumph um, was that he backed away from from Evo. He really separated himself and distinguished himself much in the way that we've now or that subsequently we, we saw the president, the current president of Ecuador, back away, uh, the former president, um, and you know, and I think that that was something. Uh, that gave confidence to people. And it's not clear what's going to happen, what influence Evo Morales will try to exercise, how much of a problem that's going to be for the new government. Um, but it is, I think, notable that because a lot of Morales's traditional base had backed away from him when he tried to run for a fourth term that had been, you know, ruled out in a in a national plebiscite. It was very important 
that Luis Arce distinguished himself, you know, from uh, the previous presidents. Okay, thank you. And uh, we're now going to turn our attention to Chile, where voters decided on the fate of the constitution inherited from the Pinochet dictatorship. And Cindy, while you're still on the microphone, we're going to ask you to provide a briefing on what just took place a couple of days ago. Great. Um, John, thanks. There was a plebiscite on October 25th in Chile on the writing of a new constitution. And there were essentially two questions on the ballot. Um, do you or do you not want a new constitution in Chile? And then second, who should be responsible for drafting it? And the two options were an entirely new elected body or the second option, which was a combination of elected representatives in the Congress, as well as people who would be newly elected for this constituent assembly. And the results on both of these questions were just overwhelming. On the first question, 78.3% of the population was in favor of a new constitution, 21.7% against. And then in terms of you know, the mechanism for drafting the new constitution, 79% were in favor of an entirely new constituent assembly and only 21% in favor of a mixed body. So there were really overwhelming vote margins in uh, the October 25th vote. And it's also, I think, notable that close to 51% of eligible voters in Chile participated even during the COVID pandemic. And this is slightly more than the number that participated in Chile's last presidential election in 2017, even in the face of COVID. Um, I think it's important to, um, to kind of disaggregate the vote a little bit. In um, the metropolitan area of Santiago, it was really striking to see the overwhelming no vote or the reject vote in the wealthier neighborhoods of town, um, places such as Vitacura, Las Condes, Lobarnechea, where the, um, the disapproval uh, margins were in, you know, 67%, 61.6%. And, and there was much higher turnout in these neighborhoods than, uh, than the national average, as there was in poor neighborhoods. So you get a sense of the, of the, of the passionate convictions um, on both sides. Now, what's really at stake in this? I think um, fundamentally, it's Chile's political and economic model and to a much lesser extent, it's institutional design. I don't think anyone's gonna do away with a legislature or the formation of the courts. Um, but it's important, as you noted in your introduction, that Chile's previous, or the, the constitution that's in place now was drafted in 1980, drafted and approved during the military dictatorship at a time when political parties were banned, when there were ferocious violations um, of human rights, disappearances, torture, political prisoners. And the, the constitution has been reformed a number of times. It's not the same document, but there are key features that have remained and that people feel very frustrated with. Um, the protection of private interests, um, especially you know, requiring super majorities if you're trying to make fundamental reforms in health and education, um, restrictions on collective bargaining, um, things that feel out of sync and out of step um, with current Chilean society. Um, it's also important to point out like where this vote, where the plebiscite came from, and it grew directly out of these massive protests 
that Chile saw starting a year ago in October of 2019. Uh, the trigger, of course, was a very small um, increase in the fares in the, in the subway system, but of course it exploded into this demand for greater equality, for higher pensions, less student debt, less household debt, uh, gender parity, this whole collection of social demands that had Chileans taking to the streets peacefully for the most part, but some with great violence and looting, but for the most part peaceful, the, shall I say, the, the largest demonstrations um, since Chile's return to democracy. So this was really, I think, an important concession and a way of trying to reform um, institutions in, re in response to social pressure. So I'll wrap up with this. The next steps are that um, next April of 2021, there will be an election for the members of this new constituent assembly. And then the following year in 2022, the document itself will be presented to the public. And this is the same year that Chile will be holding presidential elections, gubernatorial elections, legislative elections. So it will be, uh, there will be a lot um, that's in flux. Finally, the principal danger that one can see is that the constitution becomes a vehicle for the expression of all of these pent up socioeconomic demands, but there's a sort of disconnect between the demands that are enshrined in the new constitution and the ability of the government to actually deliver or fulfill those demands. So whereas it'll be a new document, there will be very high expectations. And um, depending on the recuperation of the Chilean economy and the levels of growth, there may not be uh, such a great ability to respond to those demands. Thank you, Cindy. Terrific briefing. And I, I, a quick question before we turn to your fellow panelists. At what point in the timeline do we go from a protest over hike in metro fares to somebody deciding this will be a catalyst for rewriting the constitution? Whose idea was that specifically? Gosh, there were um, there were a lot of emergency meetings that took place throughout uh, what would be our fall, the spring in Chile, um, in response to the protest convened by President Piñera with the um, the major political parties and representatives of the legislature, and they came up with this idea for a plebiscite on the new constitution. Um, the idea of having a new constitution has been out there for a long time, but it wasn't really at the center of, of social demands. And it became you know, this vehicle for responding to the protests and offering something really concrete uh, that could be seen as changing Chilean society. Cindy, that's a Ricardo. made a really important point at the end, which was about the you know, where will this process end in terms of the structure of a of a constitution? Uh, will it be uh, in the case of Brazil? They essentially have one of the largest largest constitutions in the world, which is very detailed and down to uh, an enormous level of detail about how expenditures are supposed to be managed and every area of society that's supposed to be protected under the constitution, it turns out to be a straitjacket often uh, to, it was a document of the time of the, uh, when it was developed at the, again, also like Chile, at the uh, emergence of a, of a, from an authoritarian state to a democratic one, where the, both the rules and the needs were different from the societies that exist today. And uh, if there is flexibility built into that instrument, it will be, it'll provide one solution uh, if it is more of, a, as you say, a, a catch-all for all of social needs, 
then it could end up being perhaps not as more brittle and, and less uh, useful over time. But it, I, to me, uh, the, the biggest takeaway is that what happened in Chile in a lot of ways is uh, a reflection of the same kind of rejection of the political class that exists across so much of the region. And in Chile, they found a vehicle, a way to express that and get to a find a process for addressing those tensions. We haven't seen those solutions everywhere, but I think a lot of countries and a lot of societies are going to be watching what happens in Chile. They've got a long way to go, but it is impressive that both here and in, in, in both Chile and Bolivia, we're talking about relative successes uh, to the expression of the popular will, uh, which is good news. As many said in the time of COVID, it's pretty good. It's a really interesting observation, Ricardo, that a different model to address populist sentiments versus electing a demagogic leader, which has been the formula in several other countries. In this case, you're seeing something that's much more democratic in nature. Benjamin. It is more democratic. And I think, Ricardo, I agree absolutely that this is channeling discontent into a really productive process of constitutional reform. Where I'm concerned is that, you know, the solutions that are needed are going to require, as Cindy suggests, great national resources that simply aren't available, even in relatively prosperous Chile. I mean, when you think about the kinds of public services that people are demanding, better access to health care and pensions and education, it's expensive. And, and, you know, to fight that level of inequality, you really need really effective, well-financed conditional cash transfer programs and other means to support the most vulnerable, you know, at the lower end of the middle class who are fearful of, of returning to poverty and those already in poverty. And for that, I mean, again, this is going to be a really difficult moment to answer those societal demands because countries will emerge heavily in debt with large deficits and, and not the wherewithal to start, you know, providing new social welfare programs. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Thanks again, Cindy. Terrific, and and everyone else. So uh, we're now going to turn our attention to Canada. We're going to move north with our next segment. We're going to look at the electoral landscape on, on about what might be on the horizon, not an election that just took place. And so to guide us through this discussion, we're going to turn to Christopher Sands. Chris, hi, John. We were really aren't expecting weren't expecting an election in Canada. The last federal election was October of 2019, and the Liberals were able to win not a majority but but a plurality. It takes 170 seats in the 338 seat House of Commons to form a majority government because that's 169 plus one. The Liberals only won 154 seats that they now control. So they're governing from a minority position. And that means that if all the opposition vote against an important motion, the government falls and you have a snap election. What's happened just in recent weeks is that the government has been embroiled in a scandal. And some people say it's the tip of the iceberg. The Trudeau government tried to give a $920 million contract to a foundation to run a cash transfer program to youth across the country. The foundation's known for its work with youth, but the, but the Trudeau government wanted to offer that contract on a no-bid basis. There was no competition. They were just going to hand over the funds, and there's a fairly generous allotment for overhead built into the contract. Now, the opposition parties asked questions about why spend so much money and why spend it on this particular foundation? They were also upset because during most of the summer, Parliament didn't meet. The government made commitments to spend large amounts of money to response in response to COVID, but those weren't commitments 
based on a parliamentary vote. So the opposition felt that this was not getting enough scrutiny and, and not getting enough uh, attention. When they looked under the rock, they found that actually the Trudeau family, despite their denials, had received money from the foundation in the form of speaking fees. And Justin Trudeau's mother, his brother, and his wife had all made around $427,000 in speaking fees. And a number of celebrities who'd also done events for this foundation uh, came forward and said they did it for free. They didn't get any fees, even though they were they were celebrities. So this led the opposition to say, we really need to take a hard look at it. The opposition wanted to have a formal parliamentary committee, not only to look at this issue, but to look at what Trudeau and his party might have done with other cash transfer programs that hadn't been through full parliamentary scrutiny. They asked for the commission, even though there's a parliamentary ethics officer that is charged with investigating any sort of conflicts of interest and has an ongoing investigation. Last week, the Trudeau government said, go ahead, have your vote uh, opposition to create this special committee, and we're going to vote against it. But if you defeat us, we're going straight into a snap election. And this was a, a game of chicken a little bit with the opposition, who they thought might not be ready with cash and candidates ready to go for a quick election. Plus, many Canadians feel, well, they only elected this government a year ago, and an election might be a big distraction to the COVID response. So in the end, uh, that built, led up to the drama of Wednesday, uh, October 21, when late in the day, there was a vote. In the end, 180 members of parliament backed the government, so there was no creation of a committee. That meant 154 liberals plus 24 members of the New Democratic Party uh, and three members of the Green Party who signed up to back the government in this vote. It was um, a defeat for the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois, which uh, both wanted to bring the government down. And together, the Bloc and the Conservatives command 153 seats. So you can see it's very close. And now these small parties, namely the NDP in particular, hold the balance in Parliament and keep the government up. Now, you could say a win for Trudeau, business as usual, but having been brought to a, to a vote and having had to rely on these extra small parties to stay in office, the prime minister is now a little wounded. And as he goes forward, he's now committed to more scrutiny of his spending programs, but he doesn't look as strong as he did just last week. Thank you, Chris. Duncan. You know, from outside of Canada, you look in, you see uh, a charismatic leader who's very popular around the world. And we tend to forget about the problems that uh, the prime minister Trudeau has at home. But uh, I do see that uh, his handling or his government's handling of the COVID crisis has been largely successful, particularly when it's placed against the experience south of the border in the United States. And I wonder whether that was part of the NDP's political calculation in bandwagoning with the government. I guess my, my question for Chris is, is there a, you know, is there a calculation on the part of those, uh, those smaller opposition parties that right now they look at the electoral landscape and they do see that the Liberals are in a much stronger position? I, I think, Duncan, that's, that's largely right. The opposition um, is quite divided about whether to bring Trudeau down. Part, smaller parties like the NDP see some advantage building up their reserves, getting more candidates that are attractive, ready, and hopes then to challenge the Liberals, but only when they're ready to do so. At the same time, though, um, one of the secrets to Canada's successful management of, of the COVID response is that the provinces which are responsible for delivering on healthcare, education, and actually doing the closure of the economy, they've 
more or less backed the federal government, even when provincial governments are of a different party, so long as the federal government was willing to write the checks that they wanted to be able to pay for the services that they needed. One of the things about Canadian healthcare that's uh, sort of not well known in the US is they operate at about a 90% capacity utilization rate. So hospital operating rooms, uh, emergency room beds, uh, and ICU units are almost always nice and full. But that means in a crisis, they need surge capacity. Now, Ottawa has much greater tax capability and has borrowed a lot of money. Canada's going heavily into debt to be able to write those checks to the provinces. There are some warning signs that money may run out. And if that does, then I think you could see the provinces getting much crankier about the federal government. I think the NDP and the Greens are looking, saying right now Trudeau's popular. Our best chance to take votes away from him is once he runs out of money and we'll just wait. We'll wait until that day happens. And unfortunately for Canada, unlike the United States, international markets and and lenders are not as enthusiastic about Canadian debt as they are about a big country like the U.S.'s debt. So there's a reckoning coming. And I think the opposition for now is holding up with Trudeau, but they they may not long term. That's a good question, Chris. I mean, given... The direction it looks like U.S. politics might very well be headed and the importance of the relationship between Canada and the United States. Is there any desire to ensure that Canada is governed by a party and an individual who would have presumably quite warm relations with the next United States president? We've had a bit of a mismatch um, ideologically over the last few years. Yeah, I, I do think that comes up for Canadians. But one of the things that's that makes Canada-U.S. relations interesting is that by and large, the public will give their prime minister a lot of room to deal with the United States. And so during Stephen Harper's uh, government, he was conservative. There was a lot of room on the part of the voters for him to deal with Barack Obama on things like the Keystone Pipeline, even when those relations were rough. People said, well, it's best to back the prime minister. We have to get along with the United States. Here too, even though Donald Trump has called the prime minister names, and they apparently don't have a very good working relationship, the public's been willing to back Trudeau, knowing that he has to take his lumps, even get insulted, and just keep the relationship working. What you're talking and, about is is maybe the great hope, which is that if we get rid of Donald Trump down here, that you it wouldn't just be about maintaining a difficult relationship, but there'd be high upside potential to make the relationship much better. So I think it's more in that sense that Canadians looking at the U.S. election might think, well, this could be an opportunity for real improvement. Better not rock the boat now. I'm always reminded of that great quote from uh, um, Prime Minister uh, Jean Chrétien, who who said on one occasion that, you know, it's it's always good to say no to the Americans and that, uh, you know, Canadian prime ministers over the years have really have have often um, thrived on their differences with the uh, with the United States head uh, government in general. And that actually tends to sometimes to rally support around the prime minister. Yeah, I think Duncan's right. There is a certain value in opposing the uh, U.S. president. Sometimes presidents that Canadians like uh, can actually push Canadian prime ministers a bit ra- around because uh, it's you want to be nice to an incoming president. But at the end of the day, the Canadians, I think, value their independence, give their prime ministers room to deal with the United States. But right now, with so many problems, COVID, a slow economy, uh, climate change, I think Canadians are just hoping for for good news, both from the U.S. election and at this point, keeping the government going and not bringing down a snap election in Canada is probably the the bet most Canadians would make. 
And speaking of that U.S. election, by the time we reconvene for another episode, that uh, election will have taken place. And maybe we'll even have a result to talk about. Who knows? Uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you for this election grab bag. And special thanks to Cindy, Benjamin, and Chris for those excellent briefings that, uh, that were the basis for our discussion. We'll see you all next time. Is there a topic you'd like to cover on America's 360 or perhaps a guest you'd like to hear from? If so, please contact us via email at americas360 at wilsoncenter.org. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.